Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is, the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series on the Augsburg Confession, today covering Article 14 on Order in the Church. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish, of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is Pastor Kyle Meetsner. He is pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Anchorage, Alaska. Pastor Meetsner, welcome to Concord Matters. Hello. Good to be with you. Yeah, it's great to have you with us. Uh, you're my first guest from Alaska on the show, actually. I don't know how far I am. I'll have to figure it out how far I am from getting all of the states I know our good friend and classmate from seminary, Tim Apple, who has sharper iron. He's probably a lot farther along. Of course, he has a daily show, but he's always telling me that he's going for all of the states to have as guests. So thanks for being my first Alaska guest. I'm honored. But as we get into our topic that we have you on for today on Article 14 here, I'm going to go ahead and just begin us by reading it, all one line of it. And of course, on this show, we read from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, a publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And this is Article 14 from the Augsburg Confession on Order in the Church. Our churches teach that no one should publicly teach in the church or administer the sacraments without a rightly ordered call. All right, that's the entirety of Article 14. In the Augsburg Confession on Order in the Church. I mean, it seems pretty straightforward, pretty direct there. And yet, this is something that is much debated within the church today, especially even within our Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, even at times. And there's a lot of discussion about this, and yet it is quite direct and to the point here. So go ahead and get us into this, Pastor Meeser. What's so important about Article 14? What are the Lutheran confessors saying here? Why did they include this in our Lutheran confession of the faith that's presented to the emperor? Well, yeah, it seems so simple, doesn't it? And sometimes it's the shortest articles that provoke the most controversy. And you can see this with Article 4 with justification as well, right? It's very short. And then in the Apology, is the longest article in the whole entire Book of Concord, but is absolutely wonderful. So it seems like it's something that we're just kind of insisting on, and maybe it seems sectarian or something, like we're the only ones who are requiring that pastors have a call in ordination. But it really is across the board. Uh, any church really does require this. I've got a non-denominational friend down the street from me, and that was one of the questions I asked him. I was like, well, were you ordained? And, oh yeah, he's been ordained. Their qualifications don't look exactly like ours. 
aside from the biblical ones, which I do think we should adhere to. But it is a universally accepted thing that pastors be called and ordained. And it's it's interesting, too, the United States military also requires this of its chaplains. They have to have an endorsing church body. You can't just say, I feel an inward call to be a pastor, be a chaplain. Someone else has to actually put you into the office. And that's what this is all about. So it really is important, Article 14, even though it is so short, because it relates to Article 5, which is the article on the ministry, which then is continued from Article 4, which is justification. How is justification given to you, the people of God in the church? Well, this is why the Lord has established the office of the ministry to give out the gifts, right? The delivery men are out there and Christ himself has sent them out into the world with his word and with his sacraments. And that's what these pastors are doing. It's also kind of a note that we may use different words. Uh, You might use the word presbyter or pastor or even priest, even though, you know, it sounds Catholic, but don't worry. The Book of Concord goes back and forth on all these things all the time. And the church throughout history has also gone back and forth with these things throughout time as well. And so that's absolutely fine. But it is so important for us to have actual pastors doing this because Christ himself thought it was important to send out the apostles into the world, bearing his word and sacraments, baptizing all nations and teaching them all things that he has given to them. So that's why it's here. It's in this spot. It's kind of interesting. It comes at the end of all these things about sacraments. And there is some disagreement over whether or not ordination is a sacrament. You probably know off the top of your head, Pastor Smith, the uh, seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, you know, like all good Lutherans do, but they consider ordination to be one of the sacraments. And it's really interesting in the apology to the Augsburg Confession, we don't deny that. We don't say, well, absolutely not, never know this couldn't be a sacrament. There is a sacramental nature to it that we agree to in the apology. We say, well, this is clearly something that Christ has instituted, which does convey the forgiveness of sins. Ordination is not the thing forgiving the sins, but that is what the people are being put into the office to do. So it has a sacramental nature to it. Likewise, marriage does as well. It's something that is established by the Lord and is a great gift. So we never really get too picky about how many sacraments there may or may not be. But the Lord does give his ministers, his pastors to go out and to give these things, preaching the word and administering the sacraments. Now, it should be also noted, too, that when we look at Article 14, our churches teach that no one should publicly teach in the church or administer the sacraments. When we think of teaching, it's not like a classroom. This is the preaching of the word. We're not really dividing the preaching and the teaching here. And it's kind of nice. So, yeah, that's why it's here, because it's so important. And Christ himself has established this office, the preaching office. Yeah, I like how it flows forth from the discussion of the sacraments. 
and yeah, we brought up several times, you know, we don't really get too hung up on how many sacraments there are. And so there's kind of that discussion, but also just in flowing forth from the discussion of the sacraments and so forth, I like how you highlighted that it's this office, the office of ministry that we talked about already in article five, that administers those sacraments and delivers them to the church by Christ's command. So that that's just right at the focus here. And I also want to bring in at this point too, that, you know, you said that all churches in some way, shape or form requires their pastors to be trained and recognized in some way. You even said, and this is of course correct, that even the military requires this, that you would receive ecclesiastical endorsement in order to serve as a chaplain within the military. And so we recognize that, as is in the title of this, for good order in the church, and we'll come back to that and what we're talking about, this rightly ordered call. But before we get there, since you brought it in there, that everybody just kind of agrees that there should be some level of training and recognition of those who are to do this work. And that's really what we're saying here. Maybe it's important, as we Lutherans tend to do, to go back and take a look at, well, how have pastors been trained and recognized in the history of the church and from scripture and things like that, that kind of get us to this point that we have in the confession and then even still to today. Yeah. Well, and before I, before we uh, go too far, I do want to say that one of the other reasons this is directly in here is because it was an accusation that we were just allowing anyone to get into the pulpit and preach and that we were just being just like willy nilly letting anyone do this stuff. And so Eck, when he writes his 404 articles, you know, I remember when I was a kid, it, the 95 theses sounded like a huge number, but man, there's 404 articles against Luther and the reformers from John Eck. And one of them, actually two of them are one, they don't believe in ordination and two, they believe that just anyone can just act as the pastor. So that that's, that's another reason directly why this is in there because we're saying we're not doing that come on so yeah how has the church historically made pastors well if we go back to well you can even go back before jesus right the lord himself institutes the priesthood the levitical priesthood and ordains these men into this office to uh it is an office of word and sacrament, not exactly like what we have now. It is a sacrificial office. It is an office of blessing. It is an office by which the sins of the people are dealt with in many and various ways. Uh, my favorite is always the wave offering. You just wave the stuff. Uh, that's the best one. It's got to be the best one. Uh, it's the least bloody one, but uh, it's just kind of wonderful. And so they are ordained and the, the Hebrew word for ordination, it means to fill the hands of the person, of the priest. And so we see this, the laying on of hands is this thing that has been part of the ordination since, I mean, since the Lord gave it to us, even in the Old Testament. But when Jesus comes along, he chooses 12 men to follow him, to be his disciples for about three years. Now, Pastor Smith, you and I went to seminary together. And how much time did we have in the classroom together? Yeah, three years. Yeah, it was three years. I mean, 
it seems like a good thing. You know, this is what Jesus did. He spent three years with them. And then at his ascension, essentially ordains them as apostles, the ones who are sent to go out to the whole entire world. So he is not just finding some random person. He is hand-picking them and taking them along with him. So both you and I have an MDiv, the Master of Divinity degree, which I hate to inform our listeners did not exist in Second Temple Judaism. Uh, Jesus did not have an MDiv, nor did any of the apostles. It's something that has kind of been developed within, I would say, about the last 500 years or so with the growth of the medieval university system. But we do see that Paul is very particular about who is put into the office of the presbyter, the elders, and the overseers, the bishops. And now why is he particular about this? We see in 1 Corinthians 14 that everything is supposed to be done decently and in good order. Now, why is that? Well, because God himself is a God of order. When God creates the universe, he doesn't just throw it all together. He takes his time and he does these things in six days and he puts everything into order, including human beings, male and female. He created them. This is a wonderful thing. God is a God of order. He's not a God of chaos but of peace, and we find peace in, in order. So when Paul goes around, he's always either sending someone to these people or he is finding them there. We see in Titus, he leaves Titus in Crete to appoint the elders because Paul was not able to do it when he himself was there. And so this is when we get one of the qualifications for the elders, for the pastors, is there in Titus 1. But he also talks about this with St. Timothy. He says, don't neglect the gift that was given to you by the laying on of hands by the elders. And so we see that Timothy himself was ordained to preach, teach, and administer the sacraments as well. And this is one of Paul's big tasks that he does in the book of Acts, he goes around and he himself is doing preaching and teaching, though not baptizing, although he maybe did one, he can't quite remember, right? I love the little notes like that, that he gives, but he's always finding Christians, finding churches and putting pastors in them. And we think, I think uh, there could be a good case that he actually establishes a sort of seminary in Ephesus. In Acts 19, it talks about him being there for two years, reasoning in the hall of Tyrannus. And so what we think this might be is that he's probably renting out this lecture hall in the middle of the day during what is basically the siesta time in Ephesus. And he spends two years there training these disciples. And in Ephesus, um, you think of the geography of Turkey. And um, if you're ever in Bible class and the pastor asks you like where something is, like if you say like modern day Turkey, like most of the time you're going to be right. But uh, these pastors from Ephesus then probably go out and start what are then what become the seven churches in the book of 
revelation. And so we find this, it's kind of a very organic thing right from the get-go. Sometimes Paul finds people in places. Sometimes he sends them. Either way works. Uh, the church has never really been super committed to one particular way of finding pastors. And we always think that the missionary's job is to go somewhere and then raise up local leaders or something, which is good sometimes, but other times it might not be. Either way will work. You can preach the word if you are from there or if you aren't. And sometimes it works better if you're not from there because uh, they don't even like Jesus in his hometown, right? But uh, we go on and eventually as the Roman Empire starts to fall apart, the church steps in and kind of inhabits the ashes of the empire. And the first mention of a cathedral school is in the year 527 in the Second Council of Toledo. But so you have all these cathedrals that are starting schools in the big towns. And one of the jobs that the cathedral schools have, their main job is to educate the priests and also the choirs. So they're preserving what the church has already been doing for the first five centuries. Eventually, around the year 1000 or so, the University of Bologna is the first kind of what we would recognize as a university that's founded in 1088. And these things just kind of spread all over the place. And one of the big duties, the jobs that they have is to educate the priests. And you think of this too, and we can see a lot of this in the life of Luther, that his education really comes from the monastery. When he comes under orders, he's also then ordered to, to go on and to learn. So a lot of this just happens in the monasteries, at the cathedrals, but they're always very aware that they need to be raising up the next generation of priests and also musicians. Uh, we have a, I know there's a lack of musicians in the Lutheran churches right now. Uh, anyone who ever has to find a substitute organist, it's kind of hard sometimes. And maybe we need to come up with a modern sort of cathedral school. I don't know. But it, there's also these other really interesting instances. St. Ambrose, who was uh, the Bishop of Milan in the fourth century, there's this wonderful story of how he became the bishop. He was already well-educated in the, the Roman system, and there was a kind of a crisis in the cathedral there in Milan. And Ambrose was not, he was not even baptized yet. Uh, he was still learning, but he was an Orthodox Christian, uh, he believed what we would have in the Nicene Creed. And he was also a smart guy and a good speaker. And so uh, <laughs> they're having this crisis and the people just say, Ambrose, Bishop. And they start chanting this. And, uh, you know, you get this poor guy there who just, you know, he's the guy who just joined the church, hasn't even been baptized yet. And so they baptize, ordain him and make him the bishop kind of in one fell swoop on uh, December 7th, 374. And you have these other instances too. If you've ever read St. John Chrysostom, he was the Bishop of Constantinople at the same time as Ambrose was Bishop of Milan. He writes these, it's called the six books on the priesthood, but 
it's mostly like him not wanting to go into the priesthood. And it, and a lot of it is like, he's hiding behind a door underneath a couch, trying to avoid the people coming to seize him, to make him a priest and to put him under orders. So sometimes you have guys who have this like internal desire to become pastors. And sometimes they just find the people and kind of force it on them. But I love it. Again, either way will work. But it's clear, though, that it's not just for everyone. And even when they do find these guys like Ambrose, they don't just say, hey, buddy, all right, you're the bishop now, get into the pulpit. They do ordain him and they put him in there. And this is just what the church has always done, is to ordain these men which is also an important word for us to use because it is to put them under orders. They're not just doing their own thing. They're not making up anything new. They're under orders. So you and I, Pastor Smith, on my wall, I have framed my diploma of vocation. And then my call documents actually tell me what I'm supposed to do. I'm not making this up. I'm not the first pastor here. I won't be the last pastor here. They have called me to do particular things, preach, teach, and minister the sacraments. You know, it's kind of fun every once in a while. I'll, you know, have to fix a door hinge or something, but that's not essentially what I'm here to do. The Lord has sent out pastors to preach, teach, and administer the sacraments. So, yeah, this is just what the church has always done. As you mentioned that, term ordained there. You've brought that in several times and mentioned that we're under orders. A couple thoughts that came to my mind as you were talking through that. First, the very root word of ordained is order, right? It's the Latin word ordo is the root of that word. And that leads to the fact that we're under orders and we might think of that in like a military sense and so forth. And that's kind of how you were using that there. But even as we see in this article, that there is a right order for the church, that we're going to do things in an orderly way. And you mentioned there, uh, that was the other thought that came to me, is the diploma of vocation. So I actually just accepted a call to Iowa. So I'll be moving here about a week or so, going to Mason City, Iowa, and becoming pastor of Bethlehem Lutheran Church. And when I signed that diploma of vocation that I had accepted the call, uh, there's a second page to that that always comes with it, and it's called the, they call it the supplement to the diploma of vocation. And I love it, and I just brought it up here just so that I can kind of reference it here because I think it's important to this discussion, especially as you brought it in there, that they literally tell me what they want me to do as their pastor. And then I think it's sometimes funny that, you know, you take a look at a lot of churches and I'm sure that this will not be the case in Mason City, Iowa, and it has not been the case where I am here now. But we know a lot of folks and a lot of congregations in the Synod that uh, sometimes you get expectations of your pastor that aren't actually what you ask him to do here. But just just highlight a few of them. So it begins right away and it says, In the name of the triune God and by his authority, in order that we might carry out his mission to the world, we hereby authorize and obligate you to administer to us the word of God in its full truth and purity as contained in the sacred scriptures of the Old and New Testaments and set forth in the confessional writings of the Evangelical Lutheran Church as found in the Book of Concord. There's a plug for this show, you know, like if this is what you're asking your pastor to do, right? Uh, to administer the Holy Sacraments in accordance with their divine institution. And just on and on it goes here. I won't read through all of them. I don't 
want to take away. But, you know, just to kind of supplement what you said there, that this is a part of the ordained ministry, right? Is that there's an order to it and there's an order that we follow in putting it in there. And I love how you highlight it. You know, church history is kind of messy on these things sometimes. It's not like it's always the same thing followed in every place and things have developed over time. Um, I think we have a good order within the LCMS as we have it now. Could it maybe be improved? Maybe, but that's above my pay grade. So we'll let someone else handle those things, but a pretty good order. But then also we are under these orders to do these things in the church and they all flow forth from what's taught in scripture. Um, We're going to go ahead and actually take a break here as this kind of natural place to take a break here. But when we come back, I want to talk more about this order that we have for the ordained ministry and specifically take up that phrase there at the end without a rightly ordered call. And you've been laying the foundation for that. And we'll talk a little more about that. And probably well known to a lot of our listeners, the Latin for that rightly ordered call is rite vocatus. And that gets thrown around in our circles as we have these discussions and debates a lot on this as well. So we'll take that up on the other side of the break with our guest today, Pastor Kyle Meeser. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. The word of Christ comes forth from his mouth as a sharp, two-edged sword. By that word, he puts our sin to death, and he raises us to new life in him. Join me, Pastor Timothy Apple, on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on KFUO, as guest pastors from around the world lead us into the word of God to help us sharpen our faith in Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with our guest today, Pastor Kyle Meetzer. He is pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Anchorage, Alaska, and we are discussing Article 14 from the Augsburg Confession on order in the church. And just before break there, we were talking about how order in the church is an apt title for this article because when we talk about the ordained ministry, order is at the very root of that. And of course, this is how that article ends there, that it says that no one should publicly teach in the church or administer sacraments without a rightly ordered call. And this is what I let the cat out of the bag right at the beginning is probably the most debated part of this is, well, what is the rightly ordered call? What is that all about? And I threw out the Latin there, rite vocatus, you know, we hear that thrown around. And so I just want to make sure that we make that connection there for our listeners that may not be aware of that. So what are we talking about here? What's this uh, rightly ordered call? What does that entail? Get us into the order of this here, Pastor Meester. Great. So also in the uh, German, it's Ordentlichen Beruf. Now, my kids attend a uh, German school here in Anchorage. And when they started, I thought I would just like learn German because they are, and that is not the case. So I've recently decided to try and learn it myself. And so um, the other day on my German app that I'm using, I learned the word Beruf. And I said, oh, well, I recognize that word. And it's just the word for like job 
or vocation, what you do. And so it's kind of interesting that the chairman at least says like, don't preach, teach, administer the sacraments unless it's your job to do so. And so in the Latin as well, you know, the rite vocatus, it is referring to a specific thing. It is referring to a particular rite of ordination. And, you know, and we talk about the call as well. One of my uh, members here pointed out to me that that word, the vocatus, is the same word as like vocalization, you know. And so it is literally the people, you know, so when they cry out Ambrose Bishop, that is they're calling him into this. And so they're actually speaking this. And there is a spot in the ordination and installation rites where the congregation does have to say, hey, we'll receive you as our pastor and we'll make your job a joy. And now how do we do this? So when I decided I wanted to be a pastor, I told people about this. I said, I think I would like to be a pastor. And they either said, yes, that's a great idea. Or they said, no, um, no one said no. But when you want to be a pastor, you have to do tons of paperwork and you have to get a letter from your pastor saying, yes, this guy's good. And then you have to get a, a letter from your district president. You have to go have an interview. You and I both have done this. And uh, you sit down with a group of like five people at your district headquarters and then they sign off on you and then you have to get letters of recommendation from people saying yes this guy i think he would be good and then that lets you into the seminary that's not even like oh well he should be a pastor now and then you spend four years in formation and at the end of that they interview you again and this is what the whole entire thing has been both preparing you to be a pastor and kind of observing your qualifications for being a pastor. So he's learned all the things. Does he have what we call the habitus, the habits of being a pastor? Would he be good? And both you and I know that not everyone who started seminary with us is in the pastoral office now. Some of them did not make it through the first week. Some some made it all the way. Uh, you can have a, a Master of Divinity, a seminary degree, and also not be a pastor. Likewise, I know men from my undergraduate days were in the pre-seminary program who did not end up going to seminary for whatever reason. But again, this is all just to say that it's not your desire that makes you a pastor. No more than my desire to be married to someone, they have to say yes, right? I can say, oh, I love you so much. And, you know, I want to be your husband. But unless she says, I do, you have to, you both have to turn the key, right? And so it's the same thing with how we make pastors. So there is the call and ordination and these things always go together, okay? We don't just ordain men and send them out. Someone has to call them. So a congregation calls the man to be the pastor, and then he is ordained as such. They always go together. Now, what we see during the time of the Reformation, the bishops stopped providing pastors for what would 
become Lutheran churches. They kind of cut them off. And eventually they had to figure out what to do with this because pastors die and you have to replace them for whatever reason. And so there's a crisis kind of early on in Bohemia, in Prague, basically, in 1523. And they write to Luther and they say, they're not sending us another pastor. We don't know what to do. And Luther says, well, elect your own person and ordain them. So call someone and ordain them. And he does not have a whole lot of qualifications other than the biblical ones for this. Now, I mean, you ask, like, well, did Luther just abandon this? No. He does compose a rite of ordination, and it doesn't look a whole lot like the Roman Catholic rite of ordination. And one of the reasons we think this is is just because he didn't have a copy of it in the library. So when he's revising it, he doesn't have the original thing to do it from because he's not someone who would have ordinarily been ordaining anyone anyways. But they wait until 1535. So the Augsburg Confession comes out in 1530, and it had been years since they'd had anyone ordained. And eventually in 1535, it was Elector John Frederick. So the secular authority is like, well, we got to do something about this. And he decrees that the ordinations would happen in Wittenberg. And then uh, August 14th, 1535, a man named Hieronymus Hirschneider of Vogtland was ordained there in Wittenberg. But they did not just say, one, okay, we don't need to do this, or two, let's just quickly do this. And Luther and the Reformers have these ideas, which are at odds with the practices of the day, but they're very conservative. They're very careful when they are changing anything because, I mean, it's like your, the supplement to your call documents. You know, it starts out in the name of the triune God and by his authority. I mean, you're dealing with really important things here. And at the end of the day, we're dealing with the salvation of the people that God loves. So we should be careful with these things in the church. But it's interesting that ordination is never seen as optional for pastors for the people who are going to be preaching, teaching, and ministering the sacraments, it is never optional. And I don't know when, it, when exactly it becomes like that. It's probably in the Radical Reformation that they come along and they say, well, that's not in the Bible. Which, by the way, we do have to admit, ordination is not prescribed in the Bible. It is described many times. But you have this idea that you have an internal call which is then also confirmed by an external thing, okay? So when Paul is converted, he is absolutely converted. But then what does the Lord do? He says, okay, then go to Ananias and he's going to lay hands on you. And so, yeah, ordination is not something that is prescribed in the Bible, but it's like all over the place in there. So if we want to be like absolute minimalists, which I, I don't want to be an ecclesiastical minimalist, I think it's all great. And so we're going to do what they were doing. And the church has always done this. There's this wonderful passage in Bede, the uh, ecclesiastical history of the English people. So it's the history of like how the gospel spread throughout the British Isles. And Augustine of Canterbury, this is in the fifth century. He's sent there 
to basically organize the church. And he actually ends up being invited there by the local leaders who are pagans at the time. But Augustine of Canterbury has this question. He asks Pope Gregory the Great, and he says, hey, so I know we need to like make more bishops, more pastors here, but it's a long way to get around and it's kind of dangerous too. So would it be okay if we just like didn't have to go there because you have to have multiple bishops to in order to make a new bishop? And Pope Gregory writes back and he's like, well, no, just because something is hard doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Just because faithfulness is difficult doesn't give you a free pass. And so I wonder, you know, when we have this issue, especially in our church, with churches that are kind of in far-flung places that probably can't afford a pastor or who have someone who is acting as a pastor but is not actually, I just wonder, should we try and be faithful? And should we maybe go there even if it's difficult to get there? Should we go and lay hands on these people? Should we examine them even if they don't have an MDiv? Because again, it's not something that's a scriptural thing, but should we actually go there and ordain these people into the office, put them under orders, you know? And if they don't want to, I would be interested to know why they wouldn't want to do that. And they probably shouldn't be preaching, teaching, and administering the sacraments then as well if they don't want to be held accountable to anyone. So, yeah, the call and the ordination always go together. And, you know, in our Missouri Synod, forefathers are quite explicit on this stuff too. But, you know, it's kind of interesting when you look at your Book of Concord. Well, in our reader's edition, there's these like gigantic notes and the notes are longer than the actual articles a lot of the time, right? And then you have the article titles and the bold, and then these fancy little, little lines in between. But when it was originally written, they didn't have article names. They were not even necessarily enumerated. And so it goes straight from our churches teach that no one should publicly teach in the church or administer the sacraments without a rightly ordered call. And our churches teach that ceremonies ought to be observed that may be observed without sin. And so it jumps right into this thing. It's talking about a particular ceremony. So when you were ordained, Patrick Smith, and when I was ordained, all the churches sent their pastors to the place where I was going, Grace Lutheran Church in Greensboro, North Carolina. And there were like 10 other pastors there. And they laid their hands upon me. And they said, this guy is your pastor. And everyone saw it. It's not something that takes place in secret. And then when I came to Zion here in Anchorage, I actually brought someone with me from North Carolina. And we're in the car and, you know, it's a long drive from North Carolina to Alaska. I believe it took us nine days of a grueling pace. And at some point, it's like, why am I going up here with you again? And I said, well... I need someone to come with me who knows me and can say, yeah, you should take this man to be your pastor. And so that's essentially what happens when we're ordaining someone. All the other pastors get together and lay their hands upon him. The elders lay their hands upon him. Uh, there are issues with other churches as well. Apostolic succession 
I don't really want to talk about that too much, but it's kind of a cool idea. You know, who ordained you? I know who ordained me. His name is Keith Speaks and someone ordained him. And you can go all the way back to the time of the apostles, I assume. And it's kind of cool. The whole entire church has this line and they say, yeah, this guy's good. So that is what we're doing here in Article 14 in our churches. Yeah, I think part of the thing that you brought in there too, and it somewhat relates to that apostolic succession question, especially when it comes to the time of the Lutheran Reformation and so forth of, you know, the Catholics are denying us the pastors, but then, you know, comes up at other times too, as you you mentioned there that, you know, hey, there's no pastors and what do we do about this? And we have those challenges that we need to face. And I love how you brought in Luther's encouragement to that. And he says, well, you know, call and order this man into the office and do it in this way. And it's scripturally grounded in what is expected of him there. And again, it's a messy history of the church. And we still have messes here today. I mean, one of the reasons that this is so debated and is such a controversial issue in our churches today is because once again, we're facing a time where there's a shortage of pastors and some challenges in getting pastors. You know, I imagine that had you not been willing to go to Anchorage, Alaska, might be difficult to get some pastors to go to Alaska. I thank God that there are guys like you that are willing to live in Alaska and to faithfully <laughs> serve in Word and Sacrament ministry there. But, yeah, I thank uh, God that there's people like you to live in Iowa. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's the problem. I mean, as I'm leaving southern Illinois and so forth, rural area. I've been seeing this the last six years that I've been here. You know, some of these congregations go quite a long time in vacancy and even being somewhat reasonably close to St. Louis and so forth, there's challenges in filling those vacancies and having men to serve in that role. And so, you know, we've come up with different ways to address some of those. And again, Discussing that is above my pay grade. Uh, You know, I've had President Harrison on to talk about matters of confession and how it plays out in our church at different times. And maybe you can urge him to be on the show. Our listeners, just go ahead and email uh, President Harrison and say, hey, go on Concord Matters and talk about (laughs) how we meet the challenges and be confessional when it comes to the call. Uh, I think he'd be receptive to doing that anyway. I've just got to actually order myself to do that (laughs) and contact him about that. But I think it'd be a fun discussion. But uh, nonetheless, that's kind of where the rubber hits the road here of there are these challenges. And so we need to find ways to do that. But what is inherent in all of that and what you highlighted so well for us is that it's going to be done according to some sort of order. And that order we want to proceed from the biblical description And yes, the call itself and things like that, not prescribed anywhere, but certainly described. And we want to consider those sorts of matters there. And so anyway, that kind of brings me to the point of part of that discussion then is, well, what is it a pastor should do, especially when we think about it scripturally? And, you know, I brought in earlier that supplement to the diploma of vocation that is grounded in what scripture teaches us and lays out. And this is what you tell your pastor, when you call him to do, that's his job description, if you will. Uh, I love how you brought in the German there too. And of course we have that with the Latin, with the vocatus, vocation is that word there. It's the job description. And so, uh, yeah, go ahead and get us into some of that here, Pastor Meissner, with what is the 
basic description of what pastors are for? What's the outline of what they are to be doing in this ordained office that they are called into? So, yeah, what is the pastor supposed to be doing? You know, in pastoral ministry in one place to the next, of course, looks different because people are slightly different from here to there, but like not that different. You know, my congregations in North Carolina and in New Orleans and Alaska, really not that different. People are sinners wherever they live. But the pastor is the Zalesorger. So the pastor is the one who cares for people's souls. He is the shepherd there. And the way that he shepherds them is with the preaching, teaching, and ministration of the sacraments. Like those are his tools. When you see a pastor, I don't know, doing other stuff, you just kind of have to wonder, well, what are, what are you doing? Are you seeking the forgiveness of sins for these people? Is that what you're giving to them? Or is it something else? And it's so tempting to think that we have something else, you know? My, my wife sometimes has to remind me that I'm not here to organize people's social lives. And it is, it's so tempting to try and do all these other sorts of things. But what the Lord has given you to do is to baptize, to teach, and to feed people with the Holy Eucharist, with the Lord's body and blood for the forgiveness of their sins. And that is what the church is here to do. And there's all sorts of other things that are going to flow out from that. But that is the church's mission. At least that's what Jesus leaves his disciples when he institutes the office of the ministry in Matthew 28 and in John 20, of course, forgive people's sins. That's what you are there to do. Yeah. And sometimes with that then too, as we talk about in being the job description, and I kind of referenced this earlier that sometimes in some churches, there's unspoken expectations of the pastor. And that's kind of what I referenced earlier. And sometimes those conflict with what we see described in scripture, or, you know, certainly when we talk about the work of a pastor, there are things prescribed in that sense, especially Paul's letters to Timothy. And we include that in the ordination and installation rites that we have within our churches, right? But sometimes there's also other things that are spoken or written down as job descriptions of the pastor as well that aren't necessarily what's included in the supplement to vocation or that we see in scripture, but are maybe spelled out in church constitutions and things like that. Can you talk about that at all? How do we kind of manage and handle those sorts of things? Yeah, right. So sometimes this article is called church governance. I mean, the German is Kirchenregiment. It's like the regiment of your church, you know? So what is it that's going to be governing your church? Is it, you know, is it your constitution and bylaws? Well, no, it's not. It's really tempting for us to think that all of those sorts of things, these rules that we make are the things that run our church. And you have to have those things, of course, in order to just run it, because as we have churches today, you know, they are essentially volunteer-led small businesses. Your congregation is most likely a 501c3 nonprofit corporation, okay? So there are rules that you have to follow, and you really do, or else there's like, you know, bad things that can happen. But 
what is going to rule here? It is the word of God that is going to be the thing that actually governs our churches is the word of God. And how does God deal with us? Well, it's through his word and it's through holy baptism and, and it is through confession and absolution and, and it is through the Lord's Supper. But, uh, you know, for all the you know issues that we have with the Pope, and we obviously have so many problems with the Pope because we'll, you know, because he wasn't giving us pastors. And so what are you supposed to do? But yeah, we have all these like, you know, issues. We still do, right? 500 years later. And it's not as bad as it was. There's a little progress here and there. But, you know, for all the beef that we have with the Pope, I kind of love that his job is essentially to go around the world and say mass to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Oh, it's really interesting. And I kind of wonder what would our churches look like if we thought that the people in charge, you know, our district presidents and synodical president, that was their like primary job is to go around to preach and to teach and to administer sacraments. It's very intriguing to me to think about, about that, but that that's how the Lord is going to run this, this show, the church. Because what is he doing there? I mean, in holy baptism, he's calling all people to himself. And in the word, he's forgiving every single last one of your sins. And then he's feeding you with his body and his blood. And, and so, I mean, it's one of the most wonderful things in the world. that Christ gathers into his church such a uh, diverse crew. And this last weekend, it was amazing. You know, my kids are young and one of my daughters writes letters every week to a 93 year old woman who's just a saint of a human being and where where else would you find anything like that and you have all these people in between too who are just called together by christ to rejoice in the forgiveness of their sins to receive the forgiveness of sins and then to do what with that well to forgive one another's sins and to live with one another in this harmony that again, you're not going to find anywhere else because everywhere else is run by the law, which is good and fine, but it does always accuse us, you know? And so we have the churches that are run by the forgiveness of sins and you're not going to find that anywhere else. And so that is what the pastor is here to do, to go around and forgive people's sins in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing, the church. Absolutely. And I'm with you. Not not just our church leaders, which I think by and large, we're pretty blessed, or at least I've experienced that within our ecclesiastical leaders and so forth. I'll certainly speak of uh, my district president, Tim Shar here in Southern Illinois, at least for another week or so here. And then uh, also Pastor Saunders in Iowa East. I know that both of them take great pride in being pastors in their offices and thank God for that. And I think President Harrison as the head of our church body and as the president certainly does that as well. And we do best in the church when our pastors are focused there too. And like you said, a part of being humanly organized is, you know, the law does have its place and there are rules and there are things that we have to do and sort of those human arrangements of sorts. And I know that in speaking with the district presidents that I know, and certainly President Harrison, and even again, as a pastor, I hate that sometimes that takes up more of my time than I wish it would. I want to be more focused on word and sacrament. I think we all do. 
We're not businessmen. Right. But these other tasks do come up and they need attention as well. And we can have some variance in there as well. You know, certainly we talk about how we arrange ourselves in the church. You know, there can be different descriptions for pastors. You know, you might have a visiting pastor that helps with the visitations. If you have a whole lot of, you know, shut in visitations and things like that, you know, a pastor might need some help in those things. And we want ordained men for those sorts of tasks as well. And so, you know, I think there's some room for some consideration of those, but I like how you keep our focus on it's the word and the sacrament and the forgiveness of sins that Christ gives that charge to his disciples and their successors, to his apostles and their successors that should remain our focus. Uh, with just a minute here or so, go ahead and wrap us up with your concluding thoughts here today and how this article that is much debated but is very important and succinct and included here in Article 14 on Order in the Church, how does this set up what comes in the Augsburg Confession here? Well, yeah, so it goes on in the next article, and it's kind of wonderful. They're like, and there's all these other sorts of things that like we don't have to do, but we do them because they're wonderful. These uh, feast days, holy days, whatever they are, like you don't have to do them, but they're good for the church and, and everyone should keep doing these things. It's good for peace and order in the church, which is like kind of what we want to do. At least that's what St. Paul says. So, so yeah. And I would like to say too, that this is often seen as kind of a negative article. I don't think it is. I think it is showing people exactly where to look when they are looking for Jesus and his word and his sacraments. You don't have to guess. It is located in this office. This man who is a pastor is not any different than anyone else. He's still a part of the body of Christ. He's not the head. Jesus is the head. So yeah, we want not chaos, but peace and order. And that's exactly what Christ has given us in our church. Even though I am a mess and the church has always been a mess, that's okay because because we have a Lord who is raised from the dead. Absolutely. And so next week, we'll take a look then at Article 15 on church ceremonies. For today, thank you to Pastor Kyle Meetzer for joining us on Concord Matters and teaching us this Lutheran confession of order in the church from Article 14 of the Augsburg Confession. Pastor Meetzer, it's been a great pleasure having you join us today. Thank you very much. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.